HKX said there is no firm date for the implementation of the pilot scheme. In April, Hong Kong and mainland regulators said it would take six months to complete preparation for the launch, which means it should start operation this month. You're listening to RTHK. Good morning, this is Money for Nothing and I'm Renita Malhotra Hora. The ECB fails 25 lenders in their stress tests, uh, actually just 12, uh, actually just 13 because uh, 12 of them passed the test since December. Italy has the biggest hole. Ebola quarantine rules in New York and New Jersey face White House scrutiny and still no word on when the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect will get the green signal. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll discuss the European bank stress test with our U.S. correspondent Barry Wood. We'll also look at China's evolution of intellectual capital with author and analyst Sean Ryan of the China Market Research Group. And then we discuss DNA testing in Hong Kong with Lytle Isaacs, the founder of Dr. Gene. And Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management joins us this morning as guest host. Good morning, Richard. Good morning to you too. So let's take a look at today's top stories. President Barack Obama's administration is concerned that quarantining health workers returning from West Africa to New York and New Jersey may discourage volunteers from going to Africa to help treat victims. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, however, defended his Ebola response. I don't believe when you're dealing with something as serious as this, that we can count on a voluntary system. This is government's job. If anything else, the government's job is to protect the safety and health of our citizens. And so we've taken this action, uh, and uh, I absolutely uh, have no second thoughts about it. 25 lenders in Europe had failed a stress test led by the ECB. The central bank's vice president, Vitor Constancio, spoke about the results. A total of 25 billion capital shortfalls uh, were identified across 25 participating banks as a joint result of the AQR and the stress test. The AQR itself resulted in a gross impact on asset values in need of adjustment by 48 billion, 37 billion of which did not generate a capital shortfall. So if you add up the 37 with the 25 capital shortfall, you get the overall impact on the banks of 62 billion coming from the comprehensive assessment. 12 of the 25 banks have already since made up 15 billion euros of the shortfall, leaving 13 banks with a hole in their combined balance sheets of around 10 billion euros. The biggest capital hole in the region's banking system was found to be lurking in Italy. Here's the BBC's Kamal Ahmad. The health of Europe's banks is essential to the health of Europe's economy. After a series of earlier tests were criticised for failing to identify weak banks, today's announcement that 14 banks will have to raise billions of euros to improve their financial position was welcomed. Analysts believe these stress tests can be trusted. All the banks that failed the tests are in the eurozone, with Italy having the largest number at four. A quick look at the market update from last week before we start a brand new week in the markets. The S&P 500 was up 4% last week, its biggest weekly gain all year. 
The VIX, or the fear index, was down 2.54% at 16.11. Richard, can you bring us up to date with markets elsewhere? Yes, nice to see the VIX has come down nicely. Uh, Markets elsewhere equally positive last week after the mini slump. Uh, Germany's DAX ended the week uh, 3.1% up at 8,987. And the French CAC uh, ended at 4,129 with a FTSE at 6,389. In Asia, the Nikkei opens this week at 15,292 and Hong Kong at 23,302. In fact, the Shanghai Composite was one of the few world markets down last week, falling 2.3% to 2,302. The US long bond had a stable week. It's now yielding 2.2%, but investors in bonds would be quite happy. That asset's up nearly 9% this year. Okay, thank you, Richard. Let's bring in Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent from the US. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Ranita. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. So, Barry, the fear of stress tests uh, is over, or and analysts appear to be relieved. Uh, what are you predicting for the U.S.? Uh, do you think everyone will be relieved there once markets uh, open? I, I do, actually. I do. I think this was uh, better than expected out of Europe. Uh, the American bankers, and certainly the government, doesn't have always the highest regard for the way the ECB operates and certainly has regarded European banks as undercapitalized for a very long time. So the European Central Bank took a long time to do this study, but it seems to be credible. And uh, I think the mere fact that uh, a bank, the central bank run by an Italian, finds more Italian banks in trouble than anything else is rather positive. So I think it's good news. I can't think what you're insinuating, Barry. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, impression that comes to me is that, uh, you know, first of all, these are rather late. Secondly, we're only 14 banks, and, and they're all quite small in quite small markets. Uh, many of them have already been uh, asked by the big banks to, to take them over. Um, we also know from what happened in the global financial crisis that a lot of these stress tests uh, did didn't actually show what was needed during the stress. Uh, have you heard anyone uh, making any negative comments about that? No, I have not. But you're right, Richard. I mean, there, there's no question about it. The Europeans have been slow and uh, not altogether honest. And as you mentioned, these aren't particularly big banks. All of the big banks in Europe came through with flying colors. As to your question about, uh, Renita, about uh, what the Americans are saying, you have to bear in mind it's a Sunday here. That's when it came out. So there really hasn't been any uh, informed, certainly no market response yet. I suppose the biggest bank, Richard, is uh, Banco Montepeschi. And, uh, you know, that's been, that's been a major player in Italy. But uh, all of them, as the BBC report said, were in the southern Eurozone countries. So, you know, I think, it's, uh, I think it's more than you could have expected. It may not be everything, but it's not bad. So, Barry, absolutely. I mean, um, the markets haven't opened yet, but what analysts have been saying over the weekend is that they're not expecting uh, markets to be too ruffled when they do open uh, because of the results. But that said, this is not the only thing um, that uh, markets might be worried about uh, as far as Europe goes. I mean, there is the question of the great divide, if you will, between Draghi and Germany. Is this cause for concern? Absolutely. You've touched on the bigger problem. And that is indeed that uh, Europe is, uh, if not in recession, certainly parts of Europe are in deep recession, uh, the whole Eurozone is very close to recession. The the, the Germans are slowing down. That's the concern in America, that uh, the European economy is so slow that it could pull the rest of the world down. 
That said, uh, Renita, I think we're going to get some rather good reports here from the states this week. You know, we've got the GDP report coming on Thursdays, expecting something like 2.8%, first read on the third quarter. That would be good news. So we're growing here. And uh, you mentioned, uh, Richard, that stock market. Uh, we were up uh, so sharply this past week. We've got some optimism in the system. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's pretty good. The U.S. GDP figure in the last quarter was astonishing, something like 4.6%. And um, although we can't really look on quarter on quarter, 28 seems pretty healthy. And I think anything above that could actually look quite positive for the markets going forward. I agree. I think that you know, given that really bad um, reading we had on the first quarter, which initially I think was reported as 4% down, we've come back pretty strongly. And now as we go into the Christmas quarter, I think things are looking much better for the states. Unemployment is down, and uh, you know the Federal Reserve is going to stop its quantitative easing as expected. I mean, if that happens on Wednesday, I think it will. Uh, things, things look pretty good. Certainly it's not uh, gangbusters, but as you mentioned, 2.8% is not bad at all. Barry, going to uh, the uh, lower levels of things, talk about politics for a minute. We've got the midterms coming up in uh, the U.S. What's your vibe on that? Well, I think the expectation is that the Republicans are likely to get control of the Senate. You know, they're, they're just a few, short, a few seats short of that. And there are some key races. I'm not sure what that means. It means something in terms of, say, judicial appointments. It does give the Congress more power. But, you know, in our system, the executive has as much power as the Congress. So it probably means gridlock. It means that the president is not particularly weak in his remaining nearly two years. So... I'm not sure it's going to have a big difference, but psychologically, I think it will send the signal that the Democrats are on the back foot. Now, that said, we don't know the result. That election is still several, I guess, two weeks off. Barry, um, going back to the point about Europe, uh, just for a second, Draghi versus Germany, um, the fact that everybody on the U.S. side of the Atlantic is in Camp Camp Draghi, so to speak, does that help things, do you think, uh, for the ECB? I think it does. I think it certainly gives ammunition, because if you found that Europeans only on what is called Club Med were on the side of Draghi, that would be a problem. But the Americans are clearly on the side of a strong ECB, and the Americans really advise the Europeans privately to do a lot more uh, expansionary fiscal and monetary policy. Now, of course, the ECB only does monetary, but I think that that is of some comfort to Mr. Draghi. And when do we expect to see some resolution or at least further update on this particular issue? Well, I'm afraid that um, you've got gridlock in Europe as well. I mean, Mr. Schäuble, the finance minister in Germany, is a powerful figure, and he has allies throughout the Eurozone. I do think that the Germans are going to relent and do a little bit of fiscal expansion. But whether that's enough to drag Europe up from its very low level is doubtful. Okay, so the other thing we've got to look out for this week is a slew of earnings. We've got Facebook, we've got Starbucks. Anything else specifically that we should be keeping our eyes on? Well, I don't think so. I think the Fed meeting on Wednesday is the important one. Uh, we're coming off such a strong week in, in the uh, equity market. I mean, good heavens, this was almost the best week in, in two years after it should be added, the, the, almost the worst period in, in three years. But 
I think the earnings season has been far better than expected. That's driven the market up. And as you suggest, the expectations are that earnings are going to continue to be good. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Barry Wood, our U.S. International, US and international economics correspondent. Let's uh, quickly take a look at the numbers for this morning. Richard, can you walk us through them, please? Yeah. Currency markets, the euro is currently trading at $127. The yen's weak in a touch at $108.20. And the pound is at one sixty one to the dollar or to the Hong Kong dollar it's at twelve forty nine. And good news for car owners, oil's recovered a little to the eighty six and twelve dollars and twelve cents level, uh, but it's still down twenty five percent in just four months. And there's no word yet on when the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect will begin. Even Charles Lee, the CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, says that he has no ideas, uh, no idea as to when authorities will give the green light to proceed. Further delays risk curbing participation in a program that will give foreigners unprecedented access to China's four trillion stock, four trillion dollar value stock market. Richard. Just a little bit uh, more China news. China's property market fell 1.3% in the year to September uh, as oversupply and falling sales took their toll. This is the fifth month in a row that prices have fallen. Uh, Property is 16% of the economy and drives demand for many basic economies. Housing sales also fell 11% in the first nine months of this year, uh, although building uh, continues. Building's up 12%, so it looks as if there could be overcapacity there. A few other things to look out for this week besides the U.S. third quarter GDP that we've already talked about. We have uh, uh, data on the Japanese industrial production on Wednesday and Chinese manufacturing on Saturday. Time is now 8.16 a.m. and China is no longer seen to be a copycat hub as it has now reached a key intellectual threshold focused on originality. Chris Oliver has the story. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. In modern times, it hasn't made sense for Chinese companies to focus on innovation and research and development. Uh, That's partly because they lag technologically behind companies in the United States and in Europe. Uh, Thanks to rising costs of business, however, this appears to be changing, and we're joined now by Sean Ryan. He's a managing director at uh, China Market Research Group in Shanghai, and he's also the author of a new book called The End of Copycat China, The Rise of Creativity, Innovation, and Individualism in Asia. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Chris. Nice to be here, as always. So you, you mentioned that soaring rents and, and rising wage costs are pushing Chinese companies to the brink, and this is actually a, a catalyst for change. Can you explain what, what you mean by that? Well, I think there are really three major reasons, Chris, why Chinese companies are now focused on innovation. Uh, the first is that costs are still going up, even though the economy in China is very weak. Rents and labor costs are still going up 15, 20 percent in many sectors. So industrial companies have had to innovate in, a, in order to stay alive and offset rising costs. The second part um, is that a lot of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists have seen um, the huge valuations given by um, the equity markets and companies like Alibaba and Tencent that are very innovative. And they're saying, you know what, we can make more money by being innovative by the, than by just copycatting Western technologies and transferring them into China. And then the final major reason, Chris, is that Chinese consumers themselves are demanding made-in-China, made-for-China products and services. It no longer cuts it just to bring something that worked in Europe or the United States – 
and drop it into China. So you have these three prongs that are pushing innovation. So it's kind of an exciting time right now. We, we know that uh, at an earlier stage, uh, countries like Japan and South Korea focused on technology transfer. That's certainly been also a theme in China's rise. Is that model now dead? No, I, I think you're still going to see a lot of technology transfer. I think it's important to differentiate between invention, which China still is not at, and business model innovation. Um, so the Chinese are really strong at business on innovation, which is taking technology from other countries and then improving upon it. And I think that's what you see something like with Tencent with its WeChat app or Kodai, which is a mobile phone to mobile phone um, operating selling system, kind of like a Taobao, but for the mobile phone. So I think you're still going to see transferring of invention and technology, um, but you're going to see a lot more innovation going forward, like you saw with, say, Xiaomi, a Chinese handset maker, which is you know doing some really cool things in how they sell in terms of their business model innovation through e-commerce. Richard, you had a question? Yeah, but you're talking really about... Um, small improvements in a way because true innovation requires not only um, uh, quite a lot of money but it also requires quite a lot of brain thought. Now there's no doubt that there are some extremely intelligent people in China but the whole environment of bringing a lot of this uh, intellectual innovation is still quite stymied. For instance, the internet holds back a lot of research. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think in many ways um Innovation can be incremental rather than leaps and bounds, and the stymieing and the Great Firewall actually in many ways helps Chinese innovation um, because it's created an uneven playing field. So you've had to have Chinese firms that have been able to grow and develop without competition from foreign forces. The second thing about that is the government has too heavy a hand in regulation, but sometimes that heavy hand actually promotes innovation. So, for instance, WeChat from Tencent never would have existed if the China telecom companies weren't controlled by the state and really, you know, five, ten years behind the rest of the world in terms of speed and services. Um, so the two areas that are actually seeing, I think, true innovation would be mobile services as well as biotechnology. Just a question, Sean, uh, as a wrap-up. Uh, you mentioned that Chinese consumers are no longer chasing bling or the high-brand fashions the way they used to. So is this indicative of a sort of like a, a trend shift that there's this new sophistication that's also driving this innovative uh, this industrial revolution in, in, a, in some regard. Yeah, so the first half of the book looks at technological innovation and true innovation. The second half of the book looks at how Chinese consumers don't want to copycat um, the Western dream I, uh, like they have before. Um, I think what you've seen in the last couple of years is there's been greater discourse about what does it mean to be Chinese, and there's rising pride. So Chinese consumers right now are saying we don't want to copy what the Western ideal of beauty is anymore. We want to get products and models and advertisements that fit our aspirations. And so I think there's a major shift taking place in consumption, which is why you see brands like Louis Vuitton or Ralph Lauren are really struggling, while you see more Chinese brands are doing fairly well. And I think Hong Kong retail, for instance, needs to be very wary about this shift because it's coming on much quicker than people think. And it's not just due to the anti-corruption crackdown. It's really due to a maturing Chinese consumer segment. Thank you very much, Sean. That's Sean Ryan, Managing Director of China Market Research Group. And thank you, Chris. A uh, quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is open. It is up uh, seven-tenths of a percent to 15,410. And Australia's ASX and Seoul's Kospi both open and both up half a percent 
Australia's ASX is at 5,425 and the Kospi is at 1,935. The time is now 8.22 and we'll be back to talk more about DNA testing in Hong Kong right after this. How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810-3768. Well, one way to enhance your quality of life is, believe it or not, through DNA testing, a methodology that allows you to determine genetic illnesses in your family lines so you can prepare for them in the future. DNA testing is fairly common in the West and has been more recently, and more recently it's found its way to Asia. Let's bring in uh, Lytle Isaacs, who is the CEO and founder of Dr. Gene, an Israeli DNA testing company recently set up in Hong Kong. Good morning, Lytle. Lital, good morning. Lital, good morning. Thank you for apologies for mispronunciation (laughs) of your name. Okay, Um, so Lital, can you tell us why DNA testing is so important? Well, you know, it's very important. Um, Fifteen years ago, the Human Genome Project finished, and it cost over. three billion dollars and took 13 years to sequence a person's genome and today we can do it in a much more affordable way it costs about five thousand dollars and takes a few days Uh, and we when we don't try to sequence the whole genome we can act and we actually look for uh you know specific locations in the dna then we can offer tests that are very very affordable and we can give people a lot of information a lot of information that can really improve their health so what kind of information can we actually get from these tests well we currently offer three types of tests. One is for expecting parents, and they want to decrease their risk of the child having any genetic disease. Uh, we have tests um, uh, in a field that's very exciting, personalized medicine, and people can find out which, which type of medication will work better for them. We can also uh, check uh, you know, whether you're lactose intolerant, if you can uh, drink milk, if you can eat bread, things that are related to food. Uh, and you know, we're just uh, starting, so there's really a lot of information that people will be able to find out. And our goal is really to make genetic tests more accessible to people so they can improve their lifestyle and improve their health. One of the things that we tend to look at when we look at DNA testing is the possibility of forecasting illnesses or at least the, uh, the chance that you might pick something up. And then that also has implications on insurance and how insurance companies might use this information to segment people. Definitely. We see that in some countries there are already laws in place that prevent uh, insurance companies from using DNA information uh, to discriminate patients. Uh, Having said that, the current packages that we offer, they don't really have a lot of implications uh, on insurance, uh, but we will definitely see that in the future. Uh, Our body is very, very complex, and uh, a lot of it has to do with genetics. Uh, You know, our DNA is basically 
the instructions for our bodies, and it does uh, enable us to predict risk for certain uh, uh, for certain risks like cancer. Uh, I don't know if you remember Angelina Jolie that found that you know she's a carrier of BRCA1 mutation, and she had about 80% chance of uh, of uh, being infected with breast cancer, and she decided to take action. But isn't this a little bit worrisome, little in the sense that just because you have a genetic illness uh, or the possibility for one, it doesn't mean that it's actually going to turn out that way. And uh, sort of if you bring insurance into the picture, sort of predicting for the future, it's almost like, uh, you know, a case of false positives maybe dictating what your insurance policy is going to be like, don't you think? Well, obviously, um I think it's a 50% genetics and 50% environment. So what we want to do is we want to give people the information about their DNA so they can actually change their lifestyle and be healthier. Um, I see that as something extremely positive. And, uh, you know, personally, I definitely want to get that information. And I think, you know, and I think other people will do too. Uh, and, um, you know, legislation eventually has to deal with insurance. Lilith, I see you've got a, an all-girl scientific team based in Israel, <laughs> which is very impressive. Could you say something about that? Well, biotech uh, in Israel is very advanced. Um, genetic testing in Israel in general is something that's been going on for many years. Uh, part, of, uh, part of it is because the Jewish community used to marry amongst themselves and had a lot of genetic mutations. Uh, there was actually an organization for Orthodox Jews that used to do matchmaking. Uh, and they will, um, uh, they will try to match uh, the, husb- the future husband and future wife and see that they don't carry the same genetic mutation so their offsprings will be healthy. Um, so our um, scientific team is, uh, you know, it's uh, professors and doctors, all heads of uh, major departments in hospitals in Israel, uh, and they come across genetic, uh, you know, on a daily basis, and they basically give us the guidelines and uh, uh, do the research and development for our panels. I see your business, though, is headquartered in Hong Kong. Well, our aim is really to uh, make genetic uh, genetics more accessible to people here in Asia because we found that there is a gap. It's much more advanced in Western countries, uh, and we wanna we wanna bring the benefits of genetics also to people here in the region. So it was very clear to us that we will be based uh, that we will be based in Asia. Little, what about uh, the fun factor, quickly, before we wrap up? I mean, I know that sometimes people have used DNA testing to see which tribes in which parts of the world their ancestors came from. Is that also a possibility? Definitely. We can uh, use our DNA to track our genome 300,000 years ago. Uh, So you can find all, you know, you can track your DNA all the way back to Africa. Um, And people find that very interesting. You can find if you have, uh, you know, DNA from, uh, you know, uh, ancestors from way back. All right. Well, thank you. I think that sounds very intriguing. I want to go find out. What do you think, Richard? I think it's quite scary to find out what my ancestors are. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for joining us. That is Little Isaacs, uh, the founder and CEO of DrGene.com. Well, a quick look at the numbers before we wrap up today's show. The Nikkei is open. It is up six-tenth of a percent to 15,379. Australia's ASX is up six-tenth of a percent to 5,433. 
and Seoul's Kospi is up half a percent to 1,936. Richard, any sort of quick thoughts before we wrap up the show? Well, this week looks as if it might be quite positive with US GDP figures. Employment looks okay in the US and we've probably seen the worst of the the, the news in Europe. Uh, we just have to see how Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect goes. All right. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is my co-host, Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with sunny periods during the day and a maximum temperature of around 29 degrees. Currently, the temperature is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 86%. And now it's time for the half-hour news. The Deputy Secretary-General of the Federation of Students, Lester Shum, has outlined what Occupy organisers plan next for the movement, following their decision to shelve an unofficial vote on democratic reform. Student leaders and Occupy organisers cited differences over voting methods, question format and a lack of consultation. Here's Mr Shum. On my belief, um, occupation is still our uh, main direction that we, are st- we still insist to occupy three districts, including Cosplay Bay, MOT, and Mong Kok. And then after um, this, um, or what, what's next for the um, occupation movement, I believe, we are um, studying or we are finding different solutions to um, continue our um, democratic movement, including the, uh, the um, legislative council that we signing referendum. Earlier, the Federation of Students, Scholarism, Occupy Central, the Pan-Democrats and civic groups issued a joint statement on the matter. The statement says the various parties still hold very different views on the method of voting and the way the agenda had been set. The first motion called on the government to recommend that Beijing's decision on the 2017 chief executive election be withdrawn. The second demanded...